When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When I was putting together a list of battles, I didn't first include the Third Crusade. This podcast is about, of course, major battles, and at the end of the Third Crusade there is no great battle, but in the end I decided Richard de Lionheart's struggle against Saladin for the Holy Land is an important part of the political and military story of medieval Europe. And so therefore... Welcome to a History of Europe, Key Battles podcast, the Third Crusade, when the kings of England and France launch a joint campaign to recover Jerusalem for the Christians. In the previous podcast, I described how the army of the Kingdom of Jerusalem was crushed in 1187 at the Battle of Hattin. Saladin, the Muslim leader of Egypt and Syria, lured the Westerners into a waterless area at the height of summer. Over two days he wore down the enemy with constant harrying and then finished them off in a battle on a hill called the Horns of Hattin, near Lake Galilee. For the Christians it was an entirely avoidable defeat. Their king, Guy of Lusignan, could have chosen a more defensive position, but instead he recklessly gambled everything on an unnecessary battle. The Westerners were already short of skilled soldiers, and when most of the best knights of the realm were killed or captured in Hattin, the Crusader states were left in an extremely vulnerable position. For the next couple of months after the battle, in the autumn of 1187, Saladin swept through Palestine, capturing almost all castles and settlements in the region through a mixture of diplomacy and brute force. Jerusalem, in spite of its heavily fortified walls, fell after only a few days of siege in late September. The once impressive Kingdom of Jerusalem fell like a house of cards in almost no time at all, the land into which so much Christian blood, sweat and tears had been invested for the last 90 years. Many refugees from the fallen towns and cities fled to the port of Tyre. The citizens of Tyre found out about the disaster at Hattin when Raymond of Tripoli arrived there straight after the battle. He did not stay for long before moving to Tripoli, where he died shortly afterwards of illness. Saladin arrived shortly afterwards, but was unable to take the city as quickly as he hoped. The city of Tyre was virtually on an island, in fact only connected to the mainland by a causeway built by Alexander the Great. Saladin decided he did not want to be delayed, and instead took his main force to Jerusalem, leaving a smaller force to besiege Tyre, a decision he must have later come to regret. 
Tyre would probably have fallen very quickly were it not for the timely arrival of Conrad, the Marquis of Montferrat. His arrival on pilgrimage, by coincidence a few days after Hattin, was a major boost for the Latins. Conrad was ambitious and embraced the opportunity for advancement presented by Tyre's predicament, quickly assuming control for himself. By the time Saladin had returned from Jerusalem in early November, Conrad and the citizens of Tyre had reinforced their defences, and the port was virtually impregnable. Neither bombardment from 14 catapults nor the Sultan's main fleet sent up from Egypt had much impact. Around the beginning of January, Saladin gave up, raised the siege and spent the rest of the winter resting in the port city of Acre. The next spring he continued campaigning by mopping up the remaining less well-defended Christian settlements, outposts and fortresses. The only large settlements left in Crusader hands, apart from Tyre, were Tripoli and Antioch. In the summer of 1188, Saladin decided to release King Guy of Jerusalem, the leader of the Christians at Hattin, from captivity. Presumably the Sultan judged Guy to be a spent force, or possibly hoped that he might cause dispute and dissension among the Christians, disputing Conrad's power on Tyre. Instead, Guy led a bold, seemingly suicidal attack on the city of Acre. In so doing, he displayed great courage and determination, two things which up until then had been noticeably absent from his character, and would have been extremely useful at Hattin. Perhaps Guy had learnt from his previous failings, and was doing his best to make amends. Built upon a major promontory of land jutting into the Mediterranean, Acre was stoutly defended by a square circuit of battlements. With its strategic position in northern Palestine, it was for Saladin a bastion against any Christian invasion from the north by land or by sea. When King Guy reached Acre, his prospects were very bleak. Joined by a recently arrived fleet from Pisa, his army made an immediate frontal attack on the city walls. In response, Saladin arrived with a relief army, but despite overwhelming numerical advantage, the Sultan acted cautiously and avoided an all-out attack against Guy's men. As the months went on, the standoff continued. By September, a number of Westerners were starting to arrive to help the attack. Through indecisiveness and lack of ruthlessness, Saladin had let the Christians retain a foothold on the Palestinian coast and allowed them to believe that a successful counter-attack was possible. The new help that was arriving turned out to be the advance guard of what became known as the Third Crusade and over the next months would start to turn the conflict back in the favour of Christians. The Pope at the time of the Battle of Hattin was Urban III. It is said that when he received news of the calamitous defeat, he promptly died of shock and grief. In the weeks and months that followed, the news travelled across Europe, causing alarm, outrage and a call to arms for a new campaign to the Holy Land. This time the most powerful men in Western Europe took up the cross, of most note the King of England, Richard the Lionheart, King Philip II Augustus of France, 
and Frederick Barbarossa, the Emperor of Germany. Richard de Lionheart, who turned 30 in 1187, had only recently inherited the throne from his father Henry II and become king not only of England but also large swathes of territory of modern-day France, including Normandy and Aquitaine. His family had a long-standing rivalry with the kings of France, so that up until the Third Crusade, both Richard and Philip were wary of going on crusade, for fear of leaving their land vulnerable to attack. The fall of Jerusalem broke this deadlock, and persuaded both men that it was their religious duty to go on crusade. In an upcoming podcast on the Battle of Bouvan, I will give much more detail about Richard, Philip and their rivalry. Frederick Barbarossa was by now well into his sixties. For the previous couple of decades, the German emperor had been preoccupied, subduing warring factions within his own realm, as well as seeking to secure control of northern Italy, all the while involved in conflict with the papacy and Norman Sicily. Some German crusaders chose to make their way on boats, but Frederick led the vast majority of his army across land, taking more or less the same route as that of the crusaders of the First and Second Crusades. In May 1189, Frederick set off from Regensburg at the head of a massive army, including 11 bishops, around 28 counts, some 4,000 knights and tens of thousands of infantry. On his arrival in the Balkans, conflicts soon arose with the Byzantine Empire, who suspected that their capital, Constantinople, was actually the real target of the attack. In February 1190, an agreement was made between the two emperors of West and East, and Frederick managed to cross the Hellespont into Asia. Initially, the German army was successful. First, they beat back a major Turkish assault, and then they attacked Konya, the capital of the Seljuk Sultanate, forcing the Turks into temporary submission. Next, they pushed on south towards the coast and across the territory of Cilician Armenia. But then, on 10th of June 1190, disaster struck. The emperor impatiently decided to ford a river in front of his troops. His horse lost its footing midstream, throwing Frederick into the cold water where he drowned. Western Europe's most powerful monarch, the mightiest ruler ever to take the cross, lay dead, and without him the German army faltered. Morale was hit hard, the Germans suffered continued attacks on the Turks as they continued their way. Many died, but many more gave up on the crusade and returned home. By the time the survivors reached Acre in 1190, there remained perhaps 5,000 soldiers, and they, in real terms, did little to help invigorate the Frankish cause. Meanwhile, Kings Richard and Philip were delayed on their travels east by domestic affairs, but at least the preparations they made for the campaign were thorough. Each imposed a crusading tax on their citizens, with the aim of amassing the fortune needed to finance their expeditions. The cost was far greater because they decided to all travel by ship, thus avoiding the dangers of crossing Turkish-controlled territory in Anatolia. 
It was not until the spring of 1191 when they finally set off towards the Holy Land. The epicentre of the struggle between Christians and Muslims was still at the time the city of Acre. Since the summer of 1189, the Franks had been besieging the port. Saladin had at first quickly responded by leading men in battle to relieve Acre, but he avoided a full-scale confrontation. The Sultan believed he was steering the safest course by not committing too many men to battle and risking defeat, but in fact he wasted an opportunity to snuff out the crusader fight back before it got going. He gave his enemy time to dig in and build up rudimentary earthwork defences. In early 1190, Saladin ships sailed out of Acres Harbour in an attempt to finally break the siege. The Muslim fleet came close to gaining the upper hand on several occasions, but in the end, although no side achieved an overwhelming victory, the Muslims came off the worst and were forced back behind Acres Harbour chain. For the next several months, Acres' inhabitants lived on the edge of starvation. The Franks lacked a universally acknowledged leader, but they did share a resolve to achieve one core objective, the breaching of Acres' landward defences. They attempted a mixture of bombardment and both scaling and undermining the city walls. Acre was encircled by a dry moat designed to hamper any ground assault and prevent siege engines from being drawn up against its battlements. The Franks made attempts to fill sections of this ditch with rubble, often under the cover of aerial bombardment. By May 1190 they succeeded in building a path to the foot of the walls, and it looked as if they were about to make a breakthrough and force the garrison to surrender. Instead, after several failed attempts, the Muslims managed to set light to the siege engines and successfully repel the attack. In the months that followed, a stalemate was reached, with neither side able to break the deadlock. The plight of the city's inhabitants became ever more desperate, but the Latin army was suffering equally of hunger and disease. Some reportedly resorted to grazing on grass. Saladin, meanwhile, was becoming increasingly frustrated, under pressure to maintain his considerable realm, while locked for a year and a half in the struggle at Acre. He had been unable to consolidate fully his victories of 1187 and allowed the Crusaders the remarkable feat of maintaining a siege deep in enemy territory while beset by an opposing field army. And then on Saturday, the 8th of June, 1191, King Richard the Lionheart of England, three and a half years after taking the cross, finally arrived with the main army of the Third Crusade. The Franks greeted his appearance with great celebration. It is said singing and dancing, and lighting so many candles that it seemed to the enemy that the whole valley was ablaze. The arrival of the kings of England and France, with many other powerful nobles, boosted Christian morale, as well as providing a welcome boost of resources, financial, human and material, that began to turn the tide in their favour. Rivalry still simmered between Richard and Philip, who ended up backing different men for the title of King of Jerusalem, Richard favouring Guy of Lusignan, while Philip backed Conrad of Montferrat, who had saved and now led the city of Tyre. 
The two kings did, however, implement a relatively coordinated siege strategy, with the main focus of attack being the use of incessant aerial bombardment to shatter both Acre's physical defences and its garrison's psychological resistance. Saladin did what he could to relieve the pressure, launching regular attacks on the Christian-held trenches, but by the start of July it was clear that Acre was on the verge of collapse. Frankish sappers succeeded in digging a tunnel under the city walls. This they packed with wood, which they set alight, causing the northern tower to fall together with the partial disintegration of the adjoining walls. The garrison, fearing for their lives, finally agreed to negotiate, and a deal was struck on the 12th of July. The city and all its contents were to be surrendered, and the lives of the Muslims within spared. The Christians had showed great tenacity. Thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, had perished through disease, starvation and combat, but after nearly two years of struggle, they had at last achieved a victory. The taking of Acre was a momentous step towards the reconquest of the Holy Land, as the port could now act as a beachhead for armies from the Christian West. What's more, Saladin's Egyptian fleet was captured within the harbour, allowing the Crusaders to take possession of the bulk of the Sultan's navy and hence gain undisputed control of the Mediterranean. For Saladin, it had been a humiliating defeat and badly damaged his reputation. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. After the Christian victory, Philip Augustus announced he would return home. This was a blow to the Franks who hoped that the French king would continue to help with the recapture of Jerusalem. Richard the Lionheart must have reconsidered his options at this point, wary of Philip's ambitions to take advantage of his absence from his kingdom. But he decided to stay on, at least for now, and hence became the clear leader of the expedition. Richard's objective now was to march south in order to build on the momentum achieved thus far and take more territory. He ordered the rebuilding of Acre's fortifications, and in the meantime pressured Saladin to complete the implementation of the agreements made at the city's surrender. Specifically, Richard was in possession of thousands of prisoners, who he had agreed to free in return for a ransom the repatriation of Christian captives and the return of the True Cross, which had been captured by the Sultan at the Battle of Hattin. However, negotiations started to get bogged down. Richard pressured Saladin to expedite the agreement, suspecting the Sultan was deliberately delaying in order to stop the Crusaders' momentum. There now remained only a couple of months before winter and the end of the campaigning season. Saladin continued to prevaricate, until, on the 20th of August, Richard finally lost his patience, and marched out his 2,700 prisoners 
bound in ropes. In full view of the Muslim army, he slew them all in cold blood. His message to the Sultan was clear. The Lionheart would play hard for the sake of the success of the war for the Holy Land. No event in Richard's career has elicited more controversy or criticism than this event. In time, it took its place among other crusader atrocities, such as the sack of Jerusalem in 1099, which could be later recalled in the interests of promoting jihad. Richard's justification in his own letter to the Bishop of Clairvaux stressed Saladin's prevarication. In his defence, the historian John Jenningham portrays Richard as a calculating and clear-headed commander who recognised that resources to feed and guard thousands of Muslim prisoners could not be indefinitely spared. Thus he was driven by military expediency. Next, the Lionheart began a march south, closely following the Mediterranean coast, in the direction of the port of Jaffa, today the old part of the Israeli city of Tel Aviv. He led somewhere between 10,000 and 15,000 men, plus the Crusader fleet which followed the army offshore. Saladin and his forces shadowed Christians, waiting for the best time to strike. Richard managed to keep good discipline within the ranks, and so gave his enemies no obvious opportunity. Wherever possible, the Crusaders advanced, with the soldiers on the right flank practically wading in the sea, so as to avoid the possibility of encirclement. The first major Muslim attack took place on the 25th of August, but was successfully repelled, with Richard himself leading the counter-attack. The Crusaders suffered constant harassment as they slowly but surely made their way down the coast, passing Haifa and then Caesarea. Saladin personally led another attack on the 3rd of September at the mouth of the Dead River, where the Crusaders were forced by geography inland. Again, Richard fought in the front line, and this time was struck in the side by a crossbow bolt. Had he fallen that day, the whole crusade might soon have collapsed. But fortunately for the crusaders, he was not seriously hurt, since his armour absorbed most of the impact. Four days later, Saladin again ordered a full-scale attack. Close to the town of Arsuf, there was only a narrow strip of land down which the crusaders could advance, hemmed in on one side by the sea and on the other by thick forest. First the Sultan sent in lightly armed forces, and then the heavier Turkish cavalry against the hospitallers in the rear of Richard's column. The Crusaders longed to fight back, but managed to keep their discipline, aware of traditional Muslim tricks of feign retreat followed by ambush. After hours of skirmishes, though, two individual Crusader knights could stand no more, they broke ranks to reel round and attack the enemy. Within moments, thousands of crusaders had turned to follow their lead. Richard almost certainly did not want to risk battle at this moment, but now that his hand was forced, he showed no hesitation in racing into the fray. Many of Saladin's men in the front ranks were killed, and the rest were routed, escaping into the deep forest. 
It was an undoubted defeat for Saladin, and he now had to leave Jaffa to its fate. When the Crusaders arrived, three days later, they found the city in ruins, the walls having been demolished earlier on Saladin's orders. But they rejoiced to find a great abundance of food, including grapes, figs, pomegranates and almonds. Before long, Christian ships arrived with supplies from Acre, and a defensible position was established on the coast. The Third Crusade was making excellent progress. At this point, Richard's strategic intentions were unclear. The taking of Jaffa could act as a springboard for advance on Jerusalem. An alternative option would be to continue further south to the coastal city of Ascalon. This would disrupt Saladin's lines of communication between Syria and Egypt, and perhaps also open the door to the seizure of the Nile Delta, probably in the long term a better strategy, but not the original intention of the crusade. Saladin was well aware of this danger, and so ordered Ascalon to be burnt to the ground, so that it could not be used by the crusaders. The terrified population were forced to evacuate their homes, while Saladin's men ripped down the town walls. A council was held in Jaffa to decide the next steps, in which Richard argued for a move on Ascalon. A large number of Latin nobles, however, argued and said for a direct strike against Jerusalem. In the end, the Third Crusade remained stalled around Jaffa for the next seven weeks, giving Saladin time to demolish the network of fortifications running from the coast inland to Jerusalem. Only in the last days of October did the Crusaders begin to advance on the Holy City. This would be, however, no easy task. They would first have to face Saladin's army on the way. The city was also protected by a full garrison and formidable defences, or any besieging army would undoubtedly face counter-attacks from Muslim forces in the field. Also, the Crusaders would be reliant on a fragile line of communication back to Jaffa, which, if broken, would leave Richard isolated and vulnerable. It was now winter, but the Crusader army, yearning to see the Holy City and thus complete their pilgrimage, did not wish to lose the momentum of their campaign. Progress was slow, and by the new year of 1192, after two months under constant harassment, they had advanced only 30 miles. Richard convened the council, in which it was decided that they should return to the coast. Realistically, they lacked the manpower to take Jerusalem, so to continue would be reckless. It is unclear from the sources who argued for and against the decision. Either way, in many ways it can be viewed as a sensible choice. After all, another defeat, like at Hattin, would have been truly catastrophic. On the other hand, what the Westerners probably were not aware of was the weakness of the Muslim troops at the time. Struggling to maintain his exhausted troops in the field, Sedevin had been forced to disband the majority of his army, leaving Jerusalem severely undermanned. Also, if the conquest of the Holy City was untenable, why had the Crusader army attempted it in the first place? Morale among the Crusaders fell, and many left the army. 
The majority did, however, follow Richard to Ascalon, which he took control of and began to refortify. And then, in the spring, messengers arrived in Ascalon with the news that Richard's younger brother, John, was plotting together with Philip of Augustus of France against him. The Lionheart realised that he could not afford to spend much more time in the east or risk losing his kingdom, but on the other hand he did not wish to abandon the crusade without a major victory. So he decided to spend one final campaigning season for the cause of the cross. Richard still harboured ambitions of attacking Egypt, but for the main body of the crusader army there could be only one target, the recovery of the holy city of Jerusalem and so in June they again marched east. Unlike the previous expedition, this time progress was rapid. Within a number of days, the Christians were within striking distance of their goal. At this moment, Saladin was in a terrible position. His financial resources were profoundly overstretched, and so was struggling to pay for the materials and manpower for war. A crisis deepened by Richard's reoccupation of Ascalon. In addition, the loyalty of his armies was fading fast, compounded by internal conflict within the Sultan's own family. He knew that Richard was unlikely to stay in the region much longer, so his strategy was to try to minimise his losses where possible and avoid decisive confrontations, at least until Richard was compelled to return home. And so, on the 3rd of July, with heavy heart, Saladin decided to abandon Jerusalem, rather than confront a Christian army in a risky engagement. The day after, the 4th of July, five years to the day after the fateful Battle of Hattin, Saladin's army was in the process of departing, when the Sultan received extraordinary news. The Franks, on the brink of a victorious return to Jerusalem, were packing up their things, abandoning their campaign and heading back to the coast. The holy city would stay in Muslim hands after all. So what happened to the Christians? Within the crusader camp had raged great arguments about how to proceed. Richard insisted that the taking of Jerusalem was simply impossible and had refused to lead his army on further. Had the Lionheart been aware of the Muslim weakness, he would surely not have made this decision. Even without this knowledge, it was a strange decision to give up for a second time after the Christian army had come so far. The decision was a terrible blow to the Christians' fortunes in the Holy Land and had a disastrous effect on morale. Richard declined the opportunity to take Jerusalem, which with hindsight was probably a mistake from his perspective, but was done for understandable reasons namely that he was not convinced at the time of the strategic sense of capturing the city. Much of that summer was given over to protracted negotiation, and eventually, on the 2nd of September, an agreement was reached. Saladin was to retain control of Jerusalem, but agreed to allow Christian pilgrims access to the Holy Sepulchre in the city. The Franks were to keep the narrow coastal strip between Tyre and Jaffa. In the end, neither side could claim victory in what amounted to a standstill. The Lionheart returned to his kingdom and Saladin disbanded his armies. 
The next year the Sultan's health was in decline and he died in March of 1193 at the age of 55. His body was laid to rest in a mausoleum within the compound of the great Umayyad Mosque of Damascus, where it remains to this day. Saladin left behind a great reputation, not only as a formidable warrior, a defender of the Muslim faith and a skilled diplomat, but as an honourable man. In a period when atrocities were regularly committed by all sides, Saladin stood out as a leader who did not resort to gratuitous violence, nor use terror as a policy tool. Despite the failure to take Jerusalem, the Third Crusade can still be considered a success. The coastal stretch, reconquered by Richard, allowed the survival of Latin Christian states in the Middle East for a further century. On the other hand, the incoherent strategy of the Franks after the fall of Jaffa demonstrates one of the reasons for the lack of further success in the region, namely the lack of understanding between the two groups of Christians involved, the crusaders who only ever intended to stay for a brief period and those who settled in the land, including by the time of the Third Crusade, third-generation descendants of the original settlers from the First Crusade. For the former group, a quick victory, especially at a site of particular religious significance, would suffice to achieve a successful pilgrimage. But the latter understood much better the local lay of the land and what was required for the long-term success of Christendom's presence in the Holy Land. They also understood that compromises must occasionally be made for the bigger picture. It was necessary at times to forge agreements with Muslim leaders and also to respect the local non-Catholic Christians, so that you could win them over to your side, or at least not invoke their hostility. Local Christians seem to have seldom been involved in fighting on the side of the Crusaders, with the exception of the Armenians, who often had their own agenda. Over time, consequently, a lack of military manpower became a major problem, since deaths of Frankish knights from illness or battle were not replenished fast enough from the west, or again many who did arrive to fight were not in it for the long haul, and liable to give up and return home if things started to go against them. By the end of the Third Crusade, the Latin Christian presence in the Holy Land was extremely precarious. A generation later, Christians would once more succeed in capturing Jerusalem, but only for a brief period. The long-term survival of the Crusader states in the Middle East required a miracle, and none was forthcoming. I will tell the rest of their story in later podcasts. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please show your support by giving me a review on iTunes and by visiting the Facebook page at uh, facebook.com stroke history Europe.net. Next time I will tell the story of the Fourth Crusade, when an army from Western Europe, aimed originally for Jerusalem, gets diverted and ends up sacking Constantinople. I hope you can join me then. Thank you for listening, and goodbye until next time. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 